Well, good evening and welcome once again to Community Baptist Church. Hope you've had a great Lord's Day and especially this being Father's Day. I hope you had a wonderful time with family and any friends that you've had fellowship with today. But thank you for finding it important to be back out in the house of the Lord again this evening. I'm going to ask that we take our Bibles tonight and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to resume the study of 2 Thessalonians and uh, pick it up where it was left off before. But since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this uh, study, why don't we go ahead and uh, just read from the first verse of chapter number 2, if that would be all right. Find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verse number 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, or the apostasy literally, comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that as so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from, chose you as the first, as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Join me, would you? Let's pray together and we'll ask God's blessing on his word tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for the gathering together of your people and we remember, Lord, so often as we come to these contexts that you bid us not to neglect the gathering of ourselves together as the manner of some is and so much more as we see the day approaching. And thank you that uh, you have led and blessed and burdened us that we would have this assembly, this meeting on Sunday night, that we would take yet another opportunity for the word of God to be a blessing to, to our lives and to guide us and to prepare us for this new and coming week. Lord, we thank you that every page of this week is clean, that we can look forward to starting it fresh and to set the tone for it on this first day of the week, the Lord's Day, by asking you to bless us, work in our lives, draw us close to you, give us those spiritual groceries and vitamins that we need uh, from having been together and surrounded ourselves with God's people and your word 
to forge out into this new week and to walk with you and to pursue your will. Again, Father, we are just grateful for these opportunities. We pray that you'd watch over us tonight. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. These things I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are actually coming to the final paragraph of chapter number two, but I thought it might be wise to just sort of get us back up to speed with the ground that we've gone over in chapter number two because there's a there's an enormous amount of content here. I, I sort of get tickled a little bit. I, in fact, I'm kind of in awe. Really, when I read that verse, we read it earlier in chapter number two where Paul says, don't you remember that was when I was yet with you and I told you these things? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, I know the story in Acts. I know he was there basically three weeks. That's not long. And yet when you look at the content that he talks about having discussed with them while he was there, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, people get saved and we have these little guides and helps for them like basics for believers and things like that. And you don't get any of these what we might think of as advanced eschatological topics, these things in the last days. And here was Paul talking with them about the, the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, the man of sin, all of these different types of things. Well, in looking at this chapter, I think one of the things that impressed me was that, boy, I mean, you just have a lot of bad news so far in this particular chapter. I mean, bad news from the standpoint of what's out in front for this world. Think about chapter number one. You have that passage where it talks about the Lord Jesus being revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's that's not good news if you're not a, a saved individual. And then you get to chapter number 2, and he talks about what it's going to be like after the rapture. He talks about the day of the Lord, what it's going to be like in the run-up to all of that. And as you get into the tribulation period, and the man of sin is revealed, and he is described, this is one of the most full descriptions that you find in the New Testament, really, uh, concerning the man of the man of sin, the, the person that we know of as the Antichrist. And he's a person of lawlessness. He's a person of deception. And you think to yourself, wow, this reading this chapter seems about like turning on the news. It just doesn't seem like there's much there that's good, not much there that's encouraging. And I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I am always interested in the news. I, I kind of feel like it's part of my duty to, to be aware of what's going on and to be aware of the issues and Certainly we don't preach politics as such from the pulpit, but we certainly need to be aware of what's going on in our day so that we can address the messages and, and the truths of God's word to issues that people are facing. So I've always been one to sort of keep up with the news, but I'll tell you folks, I mean, I don't know if it's been maybe in the last year, maybe two or whatever, it just, it's so depressing. I mean, I would no more consider sitting down in front of the television for a half an hour of news than I would walking on spikes, I think. Uh, it's one of the things that I, I guess I really find is a, a, a wonderful blessing of the Internet because I figure if I'm interested in the news, I'll get the news where I trust getting the news, when I want to get the news, and how much of it I want to get. But I have found even recently that some of the sites that I, and they're probably ones that you frequent too, but I found that some of those, I go there and it's just like, this is just appalling. There's nothing here but road rage and this and that and all this kind of thing and if you kind of look at it from that perspective, this this chapter, if we weren't believers, is a little bit that way. There's not much out there in front in so far as what's going to be happening in this world as the future unfolds and what's around us now 
as we're told that the mystery of iniquity doth already work, that we realize, of course, the man of sin is not just going to pop out of a box in the sense that he will have been living, and all throughout the course of this age, there's really no new new thing that the devil has. He just has all these old tools, and the, the wrapping paper is a little bit different when he gets out this one and gets out that one so that it, it seems to have a little bit of appeal, but we've gone through the church age facing all of these same ta- tactics of deception and opposition to the truth and all of these things. But, you know, I, it, I, I just was so blessed this week as I looked at this chapter and I thought about the fact that, you know, Paul is bound and determined, it's not going to end that way. That, to me, from a pastoral perspective, is, is someone who's done this kind of thing for years and years. And I always thought to myself, you know, you, you sure hate ending a message on a downbeat. I mean, many times you have to have messages in which you share content that may not always be in its totality, in its totality positive. Sometimes you have to share things that are negative and that, that aren't so bad. But to end that way, to end on a note like that, and, and to not look for and find some means of sending people out in spite of whatever it is that you've had to preach to them from that particular passage with some positive uh, way of looking at it and some hope and some encouragement from God's word, to me, just sounds like, uh-oh, I think you dropped the ball with that. And when I look at this chapter, I think, you know, this is exactly what Paul does. You have all of this difficult content, all of this that shows us that the future of the world is dismal at best. It's bleak. I think those two words would describe it well. But you know, for believers, the, the future is bright. And that's the way that Paul ends this. And if you couldn't tell it any other way, you can certainly begin to sense it when you come to verses 16 and 17. Those are the two verses by which uh, he ends this particular chapter. You know, it's a beautiful benediction. I mean, I don't know how much maybe we're in the habit of using benedictions sometimes in our circles, but the New Testament contains a wealth of them if you so desire to use them. And this is verse 16 and verse 17 are ones that I, I would use continuously, especially, I, maybe I shouldn't say this in the message tonight, but especially at funerals. But I would use this all the time because it's such a positive thing to realize Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. It's just a positive thing to send people away with. So the message I'd like to bring to you tonight, as you see there on the screen, is entitled Beacons of Hope. And I think that there are three key things in these verses that I'd like to point out to you, three key thoughts that Paul gives that I believe can just be up light shining in the darkness to us, all of the bad news that surrounds us in the world and the fact that we know that the future of this world is bleak, but we end on the fact and we focus on the fact that for us as believers, our future is bright. And I thank the Lord for that. I know you do too. So first of all, let's consider this. Believers have a salvation that is certain. Now, it's really interesting the way Paul, this this you find in verses 13 through 14, but again, I'm, I'm really intrigued with how Paul introduces this thought. Because instead of plunging right into the thought about God's eternal salvation, he starts out by saying something a little bit different. You notice in the first of verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers. And in the English, it doesn't come across maybe quite as forcefully as what it might in the original language because 
you first of all have Paul emphasizing the we. It's not necessary to write the word we in Greek because it's caught up in the verb ending and you can tell that that's what's meant. It's first person plural. So if you, for those of you who like the technicalities, but Paul has the word there. So he's reflecting on himself and he says, you know, I really have something I want to praise the Lord. And then instead of just saying he wants to praise the Lord, he says ought. And again, we throw that word around all the time. We, we use that in, in common parlance all the time, but this is a fairly significant word in the original language because if you took the noun form from this verb that's used here, it would be the word debt. And so one translation of this is we are bound to thank God. Bound is not a bad translation here because if you think about it, you, you go down and you, you, you take out a loan for a car and you sign that paper, well, you've just bound yourself, right? You're, you're, you're bound now to repay that money and you said, for the next 112 years, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna pay so much a month to, 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 to retire the debt on this worst investment that you've ever made. Well, we understand that. You, you, you have that obligation. This is what Paul is saying. It's really strong. He says, you know, I just have this overwhelming urge, this, this obligation, as it were, to be rejoicing, to praise the Lord. And I think to myself, well, we could all use that, right? Because, <laughs> Is the, is the cup of water half full or half empty? You know, and, and I, you know, I, I realize we're all put together differently and some people just kind of naturally see it as half empty, but I think if we're not careful, the old man, the flesh is a little bit that way. We, we tend to see the negatives in things. Paul says, when I, you know, when I think about coming to Thessalonica, this is really on his thought or on his heart because if you go back to chapter one of first Thessalonians, just grab back a couple of pages and have a look at this. Uh, with me, if you would. He's really got the same thing going on in what he says. All right, so notice verse 2 of chapter 1. He says here, We give thanks to God always for you all. So here's the same thought. He's thanking God. And what is he so, his, what is his heart so full for thanking God about the Thessalonians. Well, it's in verse number four, but it's the same thing that we just encountered in verses 13 and 14 of 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction and so forth and so on. So Paul is talking about the praise that, that he believes that he, as a preacher of the gospel, but by way of application, secondarily, really all of us, the Thessalonians themselves, need to focus on this incredible salvation that God has given to us. Now, I tell you folks, I, I know that people stand up here and say this. And I also know that it's human nature. We can talk about this all day long, but we all tend to take for granted the great blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. So, therefore, it doesn't hurt us every so often to hear about them again and to become excited about them and to ask God to thrill our hearts with them. And in the, especially in the midst of difficult and dark days like we're living in now. And I think this is what Paul, all around, this is, this is sort of Paul's thinking, I believe. All around the devil is raging. But you know what? You reflect on the fact that you have a salvation that is, let me choose this word, unassailable unassailable. Now, we're 
I wanted to use that word on purpose because I wanted you to see the perspective that I'm coming at this from. We are pretty much accustomed to using the phraseology. We talk about the fact that we have an eternal salvation, right? We often say that. And more often than not, I think when we do say that, a lot of our emphasis is on what Baptists commonly refer to as eternal security. In other words, we believe that we're secure in Christ. Some people use the phraseology. I've never once, never been so much one to like this because too many people love this as a straw man to set it up and try to tear it down. But some, sometimes the phraseology is used once saved, always saved. Use whatever you want. But most of the time when we're talking about eternal salvation, we're reflecting on the fact that we are saved and then we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, as Peter puts it, right? We're all on that page, right? And we're glad for that. But when you use the word unassailable, it broadens the thought out a little bit to to take into the, the scope of it, not just our perspective in this, but God's perspective in this, which is really the way Paul approaches it here. So look down with me just a little bit with you, because I'd like to show you a couple of things. First of all, let's go back to the vast expanse of eternity past. You're sort of handicapped trying to describe this kind of thing, because it's beyond us, really. I mean, we understand the concept of time, but what's eternity past? Well, we just know it's way back there. But before creation and before everything that we understand about time as it flows now, there is in the heart and mind of God something that we need to be reminded about. What's that? Well, you may say, where are you getting this thought eternity past? How is that coming up? So a quick word of explanation. When you look at the verse, he says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits. Well, so that's an interesting thought, and that's, that's, that's exactly how the translators decided to render this here. Those of you who have a, an ESV study Bible, if you have an actual ESV study Bible, you may notice that it gives you a footnote on this verse and tells you that an alternate rendering here is God hath chosen you from the beginning. Now, I don't want to be overly technical with this, but when you look at those two phrases, they're very close. Only a couple of letters differentiate those things, and I don't want to become too technical with this tonight. But it, it has to do with the fact that when, when textual scholars look into these kinds of questions, you have one, one way of approaching this is that oftentimes textual scholars will say, well, the more difficult reading is to be favored because that's the one that someone might sort of want to clarify or give something that would be clearer. Well, I mean, that's a valid principle of textual science. It, it, I mean, it just is. But there are other things to consider. It's not the only thing to consider. And in the context, context is also something else that's crucial. When you're looking at this and you're trying to decide, what was Paul's thought? When you look at this whole idea of what he's talking about, that we have been beloved by God and chosen by God. And when we know what Paul says elsewhere, well, I'm just as pleased with the idea that God is from the beginning and to focus on the fact that this is something that's been in the mind of God since before he, before we were ever even in this world. And in eternity past, what happens? We are beloved. That tense, we are having been beloved by God. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that in the past... God determined to set his special love upon us. Can you fathom this? 
I mean, folks, really, take a moment and think about this tonight. How, how significant are you tonight? How significant am I? In the greater scheme of things, we're all just a bunch of hell-bent lost sinners, right? And to think about the fact that in the vast expanse of eternity past, he knew my name, I was on his heart, he set his special love upon me, and beyond that chose me. And you know what? We have many verses in the Bible that substantiate these thoughts. I like this particular one about having been beloved of God with an everlasting love from Jeremiah. This is sort of one of those key texts in Jeremiah, but have a look at Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from far away, or from of old, as the King James renders it. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Insofar as the idea of God's choice, Paul tells us this. This is kind of foundational to Paul's theology. And You go back to the Ephesian letter, and what does he say? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I just, this, this, this is just mind-boggling to me, really. In the process of time, what happens? Well, in the process of time, Paul says we are called. Look at verse 4. For this he called you through our gospel. So in the, in the, the flow of time, you and I come into this world and God's plan of salvation is worked out in our hearts and lives. And thinking about Paul going to Thessalonians. Well, you know, this wasn't exactly a, an afterthought with God. That's the whole thing that we're seeing here. You you think about Paul being over there in Asia Minor or what today is modern Turkey and on his second missionary journey and they're trying to figure out where they're supposed to go. And they try to go this way and the Spirit says, no, I don't want you going over there. They go this way. The Spirit says, no, not over there. And all of a sudden, what we call the Macedonian vision occurs. God has made a choice. The gospel is going to Europe. you, You just think about that for a moment because that's profound. The gospel is going to Europe through through Paul's ministry. He goes to Philippi. God knows all about this. God's directing him there. God, He goes down to Thessalonica. God knows all about that. He's directing him there. And so in the process of time, this man, Saul of Tarsus, whom we call Paul, comes to Thessalonica. He starts preaching the gospel. And under the power of the gospel, these people in Thessalonica are converted. And they become Christians. And how does it go on into the future? Well, again, verse number 14, for this he called you, to this he called you by our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at those words. I've tried to highlight them there a little bit for you, but in the vast expanse of eternity past, God determines that he will set his special love upon us. He chooses us. In the process of time, he effectually calls us through the preaching of his word and the working of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what it says? It says in this verse number 13, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, as the Spirit of God convincingly applies the word of God to our hearts, and in response to that, we believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. But where does it all go? Where does it all end? Well, This is amazing. Because in the future, we are destined to share in his glory, to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at the words now. Beloved, chosen, called, 
glorified. Does that remind you of anything else that you've seen in Paul elsewhere? I mean, look, folks, if we were in the book of Romans, okay, everybody knows this is Paul's doctrinal treatise. So you kind of expect to come up upon these lofty truths in a book like Romans. You kind of don't necessarily know that we're going to bump bump into these things into an unassuming letter like Second Thessalonians, and yet here it all is. It's the same Paul. It's the same, same thoughts. Look at it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Didn't we just see that? And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, them he also, what? Glorified. So that in the mind of God, this is a finished deal. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. It's unassailable. Nothing can intervene. Nothing can thwart. Nothing can keep God from fulfilling His promise of salvation to me. Let the devil rage. Let the storms beat. Let the winds howl. Let the gales blow. But my salvation is unassailable. That thrills me. I mean, I can see why Paul is saying, I'm bound to thank God. I have an obligation to thank God for the amazing thing that he did in Thessalonica in bringing his salvation to you. I'm thinking about it maybe a little bit this way, and it's, it's perhaps a homely illustration, and I'm sure it breaks down at points. But, I mean, if you were to decide that you were going to go to some particular place, it's, let's say it's across the ocean, so you know you're not going to drive, so you, you know you're going to fly, so you go and you get a, a plane ticket, to you, you know, you just were thinking of visiting Tahiti or whatever. <laughs> you know, and you ask see the travel agent, yeah, well, I can fix you right up, here's a ticket, whatever. So when the day comes, you get ready to go, and if you're like me, I'm always interested. I, I usually know before I get there, what plane am I flying on? I don't mean what airline. I'd like, I want to know what machine. I want to know what plane I'm flying on. So let's say it's a 747. Huge. I mean, I'm sure many people here have flown on 747s before. You get on this airplane and you get your seat and the pilot goes down, finally gets to the end where he's going to make that turn so that he's at the end of the runway and he's going to start his takeoff roll. And he starts. And you think to yourself, he's going to run out of runway. Have you ever been in one of those things and had that feeling before? You just get, um, 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 um. I mean, that thing is huge, and it hits those, you know, those little, what you call them, expansion joints in the, in the runway, you know, as it going, boom, boom, boom. And it, it just seems like, oh, we're only going about 30 miles an hour. What's going to happen here? It seems like the runway's got to go, man. All of a sudden, this behemoth just, it just starts to lift off the ground. Wow, this is awesome. And it starts gaining altitude, and it gets up there, and you settle in for a, a nice flight. And then all of a sudden, you start to get turbulence. I, I, I remember being on one, one exact such flight. It seemed like we were either going to or coming back from a, a, a trip to Israel. And as I recall, I think everybody in the family was on that particular, most of the people in our family were on that flight. And my brother and I still joke about this. If you said this to him, he'd laugh. My brother and I still joke about this. The captain comes on the thing and he says, this is the Captain Crane, little turbulence. You're going to have to put your seatbelt on. 
you know, to these guys, it's all just matter of fact. But you're kind of sitting there white-knuckled, you know? I mean, this thing's blowing, and you're glad that it's as big as it is. You're glad you're on a 747. But, folks, what I'm trying to say to you is it doesn't matter. It matters to you because you're nervous. It matters to you because you don't understand it. It matters to you because you're being buffeted and, and jounced around all over the place and worried about what's going to happen with this airplane. Am I going to make it to my destination safely? And what I'm telling you is you are going to make it to your destination safely. And when that airplane lands, that 747 of salvation, when it lands, it won't just be on the other side of the ocean. It will be in another world. I mean, it's not just transatlantic, it's transworld. Because we'll leave this world. There's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith I can see it afar. For my Father lies over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In my Father's house, he said, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you might be also. doesn't matter how much Satan rages. I mean, it matters to us because we have to go through it. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It matters to you because you have to be on that airplane and it makes you nervous. But from God's perspective, that airplane is, is as secure as you lying in your bed Tonight, with your doors locked and your windows up, it's going to land, brothers and sisters. That salvation that we have is unassailable. That, to me, is a beacon of hope. That, to me, is something I can get a hold of. This world is coming apart. There's very little that you can depend on in this world, but you can depend on that. You know, a man came up to D.L. Moody one time, and he told him, he said, I'm very troubled. He said, I don't feel saved. Moody looked at him. He said, well, let me ask you a question. He says, was Noah safe on the ark? The guy looked at him. He said, well, of course Noah was safe on the ark. He said, well, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? And the guy, he's kind of late, like a light went on. He just kind of looked at him and, ah, the ark. And beloved, you know, you and I are secure in Christ. You can count on that. We have a salvation that is unassailable. We have a salvation that is certain. All right, let's move along. So, secondly, well, well, we'll go past that. Secondly, then, believers have truth that is sure. This is the second thing that I'd like to point out tonight and call it a beacon of hope. Because believers have a truth that is sure. Well, again, I think this comes out of the context of a lot of what Paul is talking about. Because the man of sin, what kind of, what kind of shenanigans is the evil one up to? Well, The satanic activity that goes on. Look at verse number 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. We could just call that satanic activity. What kind of satanic activity? And as I said to you a while ago, it doesn't just start during the the day of the Lord. It doesn't just start during the tribulation period. This This is Satan's toolbox. This is what he's doing all the time. What is the satanic activity that's going on all the time? Well, there's... What's going on all the time is exactly what's reflected on a grander scale in what Paul describes here when the man of sin comes on the scene because it says here, with all power and false signs and wonders. In the next verse it says, and with all wicked deception. Well, he's a deceiver, right? And do you know what Satan means? It means adversary. So what does all this add up to? 
Well, it adds up to the fact that, you know what, living in this world is bleak out there in many ways. You know why? Because the truth has enemies. That's what we're seeing right here in this chapter. In fact, you might have thought, well, did he get that right on the verses because he says, look at verses 9 and 10, but then he has two after that. Reason for that, because when you go back up to verse 2 in the chapter, you'll find that this was effective in bothering the Thessalonians. Because Paul had been there with them, he taught them these things about the rapture, as we call it, Jesus coming and our gathering together unto him. Now he has to write back to them and he says, well, just be assured of this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Well, I don't know what went on in there exactly, but Paul mentions three things by which the Thessalonians were in danger of being bamboozled. They were in danger of being confused about the things that Paul had taught them. And and whoever it was, whether it was someone who gave, uh, it was a verbal thing, or whether it was some type of a false prophetic utterance, that's a spirit, or whether it was a a forged epistle, an epistle purporting to have been written by Paul. He says, you're not in the day of the Lord. I'm glad that I understand that's what Paul taught. I'm not looking for the day of the Lord. Are you? I'm not looking for the tribulation period. (laughs) I'm glad to believe that Jesus is coming again and I'm looking for our gathering together unto him. And these people were troubled by this because they thought they got it right with what Paul taught them when he was there. But then whatever happened comes along and they're all confused and, and upset. Paul says, I want you to know something. Yeah, we have truth that is sure. And how is it that we have truth that is sure? Well, Paul says, truth has a foundation. This, the truth that you and I has a foundation. And I want to ask you tonight, reflect for a moment as you think about this beacon of hope. What is your faith built on? I mean, are you sure about what you believe? Or is it just because you heard it in Cradle World or Sunday School or VBS or whatever? I mean, do you, do you know why the faith, the, the truth that we have is sure? Paul says, well, when he describes this, here's what he says, and at first maybe this sounds a little concerning to you, maybe a little off-putting to you, but he says in the verse, so then brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions. And so we bump into that word tradition and we go, ooh, don't we have something more certain than that? Traditions? Well, yes and no, because it depends on what kind of tradition you're talking about. If you're thinking about traditions that are human in origin, that's not good. And that's probably what you're thinking about, and that's probably why that word maybe would concern you when you just have a surface impression of it. Because if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I know certain denominations or religions, whatever you want to call them, that base a lot on traditions, but it's not in the Bible anywhere. Well, we know a, a prime candidate for that. Really, Romanism does a lot of that. And Anglicanism does a lot of that because it's kind of a warmed over in many ways. Do we have anything more sure than human traditions? And, and if you think about back in Scripture to a place where Jesus addresses that very subject, Mark chapter 7, he talks about how the Pharisees wouldn't eat without washing their hands, and all these things. Many such things like this you have traditions. Well, they're valueless, right? I mean, if it just, if it's just of human origin, if it's just, you're just doing something because 
Well, we all have family traditions and they have some value to us, but if you're talking about what you're building your faith on, if it's of human origin, that's shaky. You don't have much to go on. But there is such a thing as divine tradition. In other words, tradition that we have because it was given to the apostles and prophets who delivered it to us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you don't mind, just look over at a, a verse or two with me. Go to First First Corinthians chapter 11. See, the word, while you're finding First Corinthians 11, the word that's translated tradition is a word that means something that's delivered or handed over or sometimes we think of handed down. Now, I give you that background. See if you see what I'm talking about when we look at this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Have a look. For I received. There it is. That's the word. It was handed down to me. Where? From the Lord. I also handed it down to you. For I received from the Lord. Paul. In other words, Paul denies that what was given, what he gave to them concerning the Lord's table was, was of his own invention or was of his own ideas. He says, no. He says, this is, this is the tradition of the church, but it was delivered to me by the Lord and I delivered it to you. And he goes on and, and talks about it, how that our Lord Jesus, the night, same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and so forth and so on. But he uses that. He says, I, it, I received it from the Lord. I delivered it. I traditioned it to you. So when we, do what we do at the Lord's table, we're not just following a, a valueless tradition that we got from somebody except as understanding that it came from the Apostle Paul and through the Apostles. Look at First Corinthians. Turn over two pages or so to chapter 15. He does it again. This is the same word when he's talking about the gospel. So you, you have faith in the gospel, right? We just got talking about an unassailable salvation. Well, where did that come from and why is it sure? Well, Paul says it again. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. It was delivered to me. I gave it to you. These are traditions that aren't valueless. These are traditions that you can depend on for the simple reason that they come from God. And this is exactly what the Scriptures teach us. Paul talks to the Ephesian church. He says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation. What is this foundation? Is it sure? What do you think? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So Paul says we can be very thankful for this truth that we have because the foundation that, that our faith is built on was came to us directly, but you know we don't have that today. Right? I mean it's it's all here now, right? But in the first century there were the apostles, there were the prophets. And if you think about it, that pretty much, that pretty much is summarizes what's in this book. The apostles and prophets, right? You have the prophets in the Old Testament, you have New Testament prophets, you have the apostles. Pretty much that teaching is what, it's all here. Nothing's been lost. We have it. This is what our faith is built on. This is why the truth that we have is sure. But before we leave this, and we must, because time is of the essence here for us, but you know, there, there is something to rejoice about that, but it also brings a certain obligation. That truth has been committed to us. What are we going to do with it? Paul says, here's the obligation that we have as believers. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Don't surrender them. Truth isn't cheap. 
Truth is important. And he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so this truth has been handed over or handed down, if you will, to the church, which is called to be a pillar and ground of the truth. Here's your verse. 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul says this, If I delay, he says this to Timothy, the young gospel preacher Timothy that Paul sent to Ephesus and gave him charge of that work in Ephesus. And he says, if I delay, if I'm not there, here's what you have to do. You know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Think about that for a minute. Pillars uphold things, right? I mean, somewhere in this building, somebody's a pretty good architect because look at what you've spanned. Right? Have you ever thought about that very much? You've got quite a span here going from left to right. No pillars anywhere in this room. But you can believe it's supported. Right? Pillars uphold things. A buttress or a bulwark or a ground, as it's also been translated, does something a little bit different. Now, I've I've told a number of you here that I grew up as a boy in Charleston, so those of you who have taken trips to Charleston, so have you been to the Battery? It's okay to nod your head. I Yeah, okay. I thought so. You've been to the Battery, so whether it's the high battery or the low battery, what's the battery there for? It's a buttress. It's a breakwater. It's designed to keep the sea where the sea belongs and the city where the city belongs. And, well, I was there as a boy when they had Hurricane Gracie and Hurricane Cindy, and it it worked, but it didn't work enough. (laughs) I mean, I lived down there two or three blocks from the battery, and I'm looking down from our house. I was just a young boy. I'm looking down from our house, and I'm seeing the water about a block and a half from our house coming up the street, coming up King Street. But anyway, that's what a buttress does. It it acts as a defense. This is what God calls us. He gives us this truth that's absolutely sure. It's absolutely certain. We can depend on it. We can be sure of it. It's a beacon of hope when all around us is deception. The devil's constant working is, is deception. But we have unassailable truth and we have an unassailable salvation. Let's look at the last thing. Believers have comfort that's real. I'm really glad Paul chose to end on this because, you know, in difficult times we have this final beacon of hope. We have a God who not only comforts us objectively through his word, but we also have a God, I'm going to put it this way just for the sake of trying to make a point, who subjectively, objectively through his word, but who subjectively encourages us by his presence. He indwells us. Is this not true? By his Holy Spirit. And if you think about this, Romans 8:17, Paul says, likewise also the, well, that's not what I want. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I have the promises of God's word, but I have also that inner testimony of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Well, I want you to think about it this way, because you know what? On a good day, On a good day, if you came in here and you were really discouraged, I'm saying if on a good day, if I was having a good day, I might be able to say something to encourage you. On a good day. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? On a good day, I might be able to say something to encourage you. 
God might use me to encourage you. But you're going to walk out of here and I won't be with you. The other person that says something that encourages you isn't going to be with you. You won't be around all these believers, but you'll never be in a situation where the Holy Spirit's not in your heart. And what kind of credentials does God have? If you're going to talk about comforting people, well, he says in 2 Corinthians 1.3 that he's the God of all comfort. And Paul describes what I call three credentials of comfort here. Just take a quick look. Number one, he assures me that he loves me. This world may, might be no friend to grace, but I know that I'm, I am, as Paul said earlier in the chapter, having been beloved by God, I know I'm the object of his special love. I know he cares for me. And because he cares for me, what does he do? He encourages me. And how does he encourage me? Look at the words that are here. Comfort your hearts. Um, I'm sorry, uh, back up in verse 16 who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So how does he comfort us? He comforts us with eternal comfort. In other words, not fleeting. And good hope, not false. Not the kind of things that people say just kind of puffy and no substance to them, but what he gives to us is designed to be good. It's genuine. And because he loves, he encourages. And because... He also establishes us. I really like this because let me just give you a a very practical thought as this closes in 17. What is he really saying here? And establish you or establish them, that is your hearts, in every good word and work. So what is it this, this week that God has called you to do? Does it feel daunting? Does it feel like more than you can do? Does it feel like you're in over your head? I feel that way most times I preach. I used to tell people, every Sunday morning, I always felt like I'd never done this before. And I i don't know, I think it was God's way of just reminding me, okay, you need me, don't forget that. What is it you face this week that's, that's daunting, that you're, can you really, yes, you can, whatever it is that God, whatever good work that God has called you to, whatever good word God has called you to, you can rest assured that he will stand by you in it. He will establish you in it. Count on that this week. It's a beacon of hope. You know, in closing, let me just use this analogy. It's a little bit like, I'm not a computer expert by any manner or means, but I know a little, hopefully not just enough to be dangerous. But, when I think, I read sometimes about data dumps, <laughs> a data dump. And I'm thinking, well, in a lot of ways, that's sort of what chapter one and chapter two feel like. It's like Paul gives us a data dump of all this bleak that's out there, all this, it's bleak for the world out there. Then he gives us these rays of hope, these beacons of encouragement, these beacons of, 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 of hope. And I was thinking about a little analogy that financial planners used to use. I don't know if they still use this or not because I don't think I've ever been to one. Well, I don't know, maybe not technically. But you go to these people and it used to be that if they were talking about planning for retirement, there was a three-legged stool. Okay? One leg was your pension. You don't 
don't have pensions as much anymore, but that's the way they used to phrase that, your pension. And one was your personal savings. Now i got two of the three legs. Still, thing is still not going to let you sit on it. And then the third leg was supposed to be Social Security. Is anybody... Are you, is anybody here beginning to have a little bit of a wry smile? Maybe if you're in your retirement years, not so much. But if you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, these legs, they seem a little shaky. I mean, can, well, we won't get into that, but you know, they, they tell you all these things. The politicians will change it and it'll be something different when we get there. But what are they, what's the latest thing you read about Social Security? We'll be bankrupt in 2035 or whatever. But regardless of any of that, just bear, humor me with the illustrations. <laughs> you're, you're, you're looking at this three-legged stool and you think, I don't know if I can put my weight on this. But Paul's got three legs. Paul's got a three-legged stool. You, it'll take your weight. Unassailable salvation, rock-solid truth, and genuine comfort. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness in so equipping us that we can go out into this world whose future is so bleak, but yet have the comfort and assurance that what you've given to us, these beacons of hope, these things to build us up, to encourage us in our daily walk, to keep us in a position of living for you and faithful to you. May you so use these things as we've been reminded of them tonight. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen.